0: You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Thank you, Stephanie, and I wanna thank uh, Virgil and Pete for inviting me here uh, today. It's a it's a wonderful opportunity to reconnect with some, some old Friends, uh, but to meet a whole bunch of new friends and and uh, to see some of the graduate students with whom I've worked before again, uh, it's 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 terrific to be a part of this um, um, ever present and growing uh, and growing community of scholars, and that really and I mean that sincerely that it is a community of scholars that has made a tremendous difference in in the quality of my life, and and I'm and I'm incredibly grateful uh, for the network that the George Mason University um, and the Economics Department and Mercatus Center. Um, has provided me. Uh, and, and so this is, this is part of that and continues with that. Uh, the goal of my talk today is to um, see the Austrian research program through the lens of what I call cultural economy. Cultural economy is very similar in structure to political economy. Uh, Whereas political economy asks foundational questions about why and how specific uh, social institutions, political institutions uh, and, and legal arrangements, for example, affect market processes, cultural economy asks similarly foundational questions about why and how cultural processes intersect with shape and are shaped by the market process. Uh, so recalling Professor Kirzner's focus on subjectivism from last night, that that is the core, that's the root of uh, Austrian inquiry, I think that there is an emphasis on cultural themes even within the, uh, the heart of, and the root of, of the Austrian tradition. Because if you, th- if you take seriously subjective perspectives of, of, of human beings as they make decisions, well, what shapes that? What informs that subjective perspective? Uh, cultural context is a, is a big part of that, I would submit. So at the same time, I would, I would be cautious about you know, overstating that because I do think that there, there hasn't uh, been a real strong focus on, on cultural themes early on in the school. But more recently, I'd say starting around the 19, early 1980s or so, Austrians have become increasingly interested in the intersection between cultural factors and economic activity. Um, starting in the 1980s, uh, you have an emphasis, for example, on the connections between culture and entrepreneurship. You've got a, an emphasis on the cultural foundations um, that underlie markets, so the, the connection between culture and social institutions like property rights and, and, and legal norms. Um, the connection between Uh, social institutions that underlie the broader social order. So I'm thinking of Steve Horowitz's work on on the economics of the family, uh, for example. Um, The connections between culture and economic development, the connections between culture and post-communist reform, whether or not the reforms were robust enough to uh, take root or not, oftentimes was attributed to cultural factors. Uh, Some of Pete's work certainly intersects with, with that theme. Uh, the Bloomington School and, and the connections, the cultural embeddedness of systems of self-governance, I think, also is another another strand uh, that that connects Austrians and and cultural uh, analysis. The role of trust in the market process, the role of social capital in the market process. So, so, so we have these strands that have been emerging um, over the past several decades that. Um, have been really exciting to me. Um, But but I'd be the first to admit that they've been rather disparate. There's not much coherence or cohesion. So that's one of the uh, real goals of my uh, talk this afternoon, is to provide a more cohesive structure um, so that we can start to think about a coherent program of cultural economy research. The second goal that I have is to persuade Austrian thinkers that by seeing your work as an Austrian economist through the lens of culture, that you can advance the Austrian program, right? Again, in the spirit of what Larry was saying that, you know, and, and, and Bruce were saying that we want to give you some tools to think, to pick up and maybe use here, um, this is one of the tools that I would offer out uh, to you as well. So when we think about uh, uh, political economy, this is a pretty, um, you know, bare bones way of seeing it. But we've got social institutions, legal, um, uh, legal institutions, property institutions, things like this. How do those intersect with and interact with and, and, and influence the economic resources on the ground? And how do those economic resources, again, um, cycle back and influence um, the social institutions? And then how does the, um, those two forces influence broader socioeconomic outcomes, right? Uh, that, that's sort of the recipe here. And then we can also talk about the recursive relationship back where those economic outcomes can influence the social institutions that we're living under. So so there's this uh, mutual influence going on. But this what I would think is a, is a basic way to think about political economy research. Well, if we look at social economy research, and everybody has a handout um, that uh, on one side of the handout it's this picture, and that's not going to change. I'll flip back and forth to it. Um, frequently, but this is really the basis of of the talk. And let me um, say a little bit more, be more specific about what I mean when I'm talking about social institutions, socially embedded resources, and um, social and economic patterns or outcomes. When economists talk about social institutions, um, we're usually talking about political and legal institutions. A research program on cultural economy would take, would focus on these to be sure. Um, but we also focus on non-market and non-political institutions like family and kinship being good examples. Institutional rules relating to family and kinship, for example, have tremendous impact on patterns of resource allocation, Uh, both in terms of the material resources uh, that can be exchanged in the conventional sense of economic exchange, Uh, but also in terms of non-material resources. So things like, like when I say a non-material resource, I might be talking about something like status or social capital that represent real value to those who have access to them. So let's shift to the resource section here for a moment. Right, Socially embedded resources to which individuals and communities may or may not have access constitute further essential elements within the Cultural Economy Research Program. The categories of socially embedded resources that I'm gonna talk about today include shared mental models, right? If you're familiar with um, uh, new institutional economics, that, that should sound fairly familiar to you, but I'll be talking about some specific examples there. Generalized norms, right? Something you may not be familiar with is the literature on cultural tools and social network analysis. These are not offered as an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. We could talk about a lot more complexity. We could get a lot more complex here. Um, but it does show you some of the diversity of, so, of resources that we're talking about. That's the first point. In turn, um, one of the things that we want to notice is that there is a dual relationship between social institutions, right, and that shape the resources that are embedded within the social order, right? These non uh, non-material, uh, non-economic in, in the narrow sense um, uh, resources. And in the same way, we see and, and, and similarly, we see a recursive kind of influence in which socially embedded resources can shape the social institutions that gave rise to them. Consider, for example, the informal norms associated, associated with kinship, gender, caste, and ethnic identity, just to name a few. These norms can can determine who has access, for example, to labor markets and how the rights, limitations, and obligations are distributed within society. Those norms influence the structure of social institutions, such a, in, in turn as, as uh, like for example, property rights. How property rights are actually defined, how contracts are actually defined. And mechanisms of dis- dispute resolution, for example, those are the social institutions. They can be shaped by a lot of these socially embedded resources, just as they can be doing the social resources, social institutions can be uh, doing the shaping. Let me focus our attention down here. Ultimately, cultural economy research seeks to understand the connections between institutional rules of the game at the top, socially embedded resources that define any specific cultural context, and economically relevant outcomes or patterns that emerge from this. So, for example, the the work that I did early on in my career focused on the connections between social institutions of family and property in West Africa. What's the connection between those social institutions of family and and property? How did that start to define socially embedded resources that were available, particularly to female entrepreneurs? That was my focus of my early work and broader patterns of of what I would call broader patterns of social learning. Um, But in this specific case, it was broader patterns of economic development, okay? So again, you can kind of see the the structure here of, uh, of the relationship, you know, property and family relationships. What does that define in terms of access to resources that female entrepreneurs had And then how did that shape the particular patterns of economic development that we saw in West Africa? Similarly, the work that Virgil and I have done on post-disaster recovery focuses on this connection between the institutional rules of the game in a post-disaster environment, right, up at the top, right? The socially embedded resources that are available to uh, disaster victims and a community's ability to solve the collective action problem associated with post-disaster recovery after a catastrophic disaster that no, uh, no single person wants to come back if they think they're the only person who's going to come back. They have to. They want to be assured that other people are going to come back, too. So we have a classic collective action problem in post-disaster environments. So that's one of these, these really important um, broad patterns that we want to try and understand and unpack and understand how, how we can overcome it. So... Rebound in the wake of disaster would be one of the outcomes that we would want to understand. How does that get explained by access to socially embedded resources? And how, is, how are those resources defined and framed given the policy uh, context in a post-disaster environment? Right? All right, well, let me, let's dive into the middle box here. Let's look at some of these socially embedded resources. And I'm gonna start by um, focusing in on shared mental models. And as some of my later examples will show, one of the um, forms of mental models, shared mental models, that I'm most interested in is uh, the shared mental models that are sort of like collective narratives of a community. So for example, in um, some of the communities that we uh, investigated in New Orleans, Some communities saw themselves as particularly self-reliant. So uh, the white middle class working, working class, middle class neighborhood of St. Bernard Parish, for example, they saw themselves as being, we are kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of folks. We're not going to wait on anybody. This is who we are. That was a collective narrative at work within that community. That was a kind of mental model for them, okay? So let's think about what that means. Shared mental models function as frames for understanding how the world works. Mental models may be highly refined and well articulated. So think of the Pythagorean theorem, for example, okay? That's a mental model. Or mental models may be much more general and operate really almost in the background of our consciousness. So for example, um, a mental model at work in uh, my framework of thinking might be patience, brings reward, Okay, That might be my, my model. At any, any given moment, I might have a strong desire to not be patient, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I've got this mental model that just trust that patience brings its own reward. I don't know where it comes from. It rarely comes to the level of consciousness. I don't think about it in the way that I think about the Pythagorean theorem, right? But it's at work. I'm pretty darn sure it's at work in my head. Um, mental models may be drawn from a broader belief structure. So, for example, um, in some faith communities, the notion, uh, the, the mental model, is that God will provide. God will provide. Um, or it might come from the specific state of the scientific, scientific inquiry. You know, There was a, a time when you looked up at the night sky, and as you're contemplating the celestial bodies, if you, know, if you were in the know at the time, you were sure that those bodies were orbiting the Earth. Right? That was was your mental model. Um, Or they may be drawn from a community's shared history, as I described before. Say, for example, a community being particularly prone to being self-reliant. You know, our community, you know, uh, stands together. Our community uh, takes care of its own thing. Mental models are relevant to cultural economy inquiry, primarily because they frame the way people understand themselves and their circumstances. They frame the way we understand our, whether or not we have the ability or lack the ability to be effective in our action. For example, uh, if, I, if I have a mental model that my community is particularly robust at getting things done, I might be able to say my community can get uh, overcome this. Uh, we, over drinks we were talking about, um, last night we were talking about uh, snow removal. Right? whether or not we have a community that is going to gather together and remove the snow um, so, uh, to, dig, to dig us out or not. Right? Um, what you believe about the nature of, of the community is going to be helpful for you to figure out, do we have the ability to dig out or not dig out? Right? Um, so not only does it frame our sense of ability or inability to act as a community, but also to act as, individually, and as individuals. It also frames out whether or not we can imagine public policy that can get a problem solved or not. Further, because they link cause and effect in the minds of those who hold them, mental models tend to offer particular kinds of solutions. Again, the solutions might be right, they might not be right, they may be really bad ideas. But whatever mental model you have is going to frame out for you the solution that you are then likely to to at least pursue, at least try uh, for remedying the problem. So putting it slightly differently, any particular mental model may, may render a correct solution either more or less visible. So by way of example, consider the mental model that illness is caused by plethora, an overabundance of blood. If plethora is the problem, right? what's the solution? Bloodletting, blood right, exactly. So uh, bloodletting will be identified as the obvious solution in this case. Now despite the fact that bloodletting was almost always the wrong solution if recovery was the goal, the mental model was particularly sticky, persisting from antiquity through the 19th century. The absence of a robust feedback mechanism could be blamed for uh, why this particular course of treatment held sway for so many centuries. If the patient recovered, right, why did they recover? Clearly the bloodletting worked, right? And if they didn't recover, what was the problem? Not enough bloodletting, right? Or or the original or the original um, uh, ailment was so bad that, the, that nothing could have helped, right? Um, so notice that the mental model here not only defines um, a prescribed course of action, it also is going to define a particular pathway for learning, right? So if you've, if you've read any O'Driscoll and Rizzo, you know, you should hear echoes of, of this uh, here. As a mental model, plethora defined what it meant to engage in careful medical practice. More refined and prescribed precise prescriptions for bloodletting were cultivated and, and in fact, practiced. Contrast this with a mental model that links infection to a colony of bacteria. This mental model suggests a very different course of action. So for example, cleaning a wound um, rather than drawing blood, uh, sterilizing instruments, and so on, It also sets physicians on a very different path to discovery. Uh, one that eventually leads to the discovery and perfected use of antibiotics. Let's shift the example to a more economically relevant example. Though I think that that is a pretty economically relevant example too because there's a whole political economy of phlebotomists that grew up in this story, which is another, which, which is another story entirely. But, um, so there's, there's ways in which this all connects. Um, but, but let's think about the just price. It's going, this model, mental model of the just price leads to both formal and informal sanctions against sellers who deviate from the customary price. In the context of heightened scarcity, we all know what's going to happen here, right? Um, adherence to the customary price will exacerbate the shortage. Right? Now, if we had really, really robust feedback mechanisms, we would just then immediately go to flexible prices. But the problem is that oftentimes... Uh, Our our mental models are very, very sticky, even though they're not really working well for us. And so in this particular context, uh, this mental model of a just price, if it's particularly sticky, will lead to uh, more and more refined ways of sanctioning um, uh, aberrant behavior. When people are found out, they're going to be um, punished more severely, for example. Now, uh, another... (coughs) another kind of pathway of learning, so we learn better, better ways of, of uh, sanctioning this uh, deviations from the just price. Alternatively, if there is a, is a strong adherence to the just price, mental, this mental model may direct learning toward discovering artful ways to bypass uh, the, the prohibition and circumventing the prohibition. The mental model that attributes widespread social coordination to flexible prices, though, Um, would lead to a very, very different kind of learning where um, producers would find ways to economize their use of inputs, um, for example, so that they could increase the supply. Uh, We could imagine flexible prices. We've talked a lot about uh, flexible interest rates. We can talk about flexible prices as as our way of rendering a solution for solving the shortage, et cetera. But notice that the the mental model we hold is going to drive both the outcomes but also the learning that takes place. So let's talk about generalized norms. Pay attention to the the fact that, that I've got arrows going in all these different directions, and that's to indicate... That there, that there is a mutuality here going on, that one can influence the other uh, in, uh, in either direction. So moving to generalized norms here, I'll define generalized norms as commonly shared attitudes of association. Generalized norms of trust and reciprocity, for example, have the potential to generate tangible returns by lowering transactions costs among people who engage in both market and non-market exchange on a frequent basis, The arrows in the diagram, as I mentioned, uh, draw attention to the interactive, interactive nature between these different forms of socially embedded resources. So for example, a generalized norm of reciprocity is more likely to prevail in a community that holds to the mental model that kindness to strangers generates some positive outcome. So for example, um, or to be clear, if if I've got a mental model that says kindness to strangers will lead to a a reward in the afterlife, right? If that's my mental model, and that's the mental model of lots of people within that that community, we'd be much more likely to see when strangers present themselves to us uh, that, that we would see kindness shown, right? And that we would see a kind of high reciprocity uh, norm emerge in such a context. So this is the connect point between the connection of the mental model and the generalized norm that that emerges. On the other hand, if the mental model at work in the community is that um, strangers, particularly those who are presenting themselves in need, are likely to be charlatans, swindlers of some kind, you know, we, we're not going to, we're not likely to see a, a generation of generalized norm of high reciprocity. We'd probably see low reciprocity here. In the former case, kindness to the stranger in need will be considered the right thing to do, so to speak. In the latter context, kindness to strangers in need will be considered foolhardy and a sign of our naivete. In turn, right, we can see the the arrow moving in the opposite direction. Generalized norms can also influence our uh, uh, mental models that we possess within a particular context. For example, a generalized norm favoring hard work and self-reliant behavior within an ethnically homogeneous community could lead to reinforce the mental model that that particular ethnic community is particularly self-reliant and more self-reliant than and hardworking than the average uh, member of the broader society, for example. Let's talk about cultural tools. According to cultural sociologist Ann Swidler, individuals often become skillfully adept at using specific attributes within their culture in a kind of tool-like fashion. For example, a cultural practitioner might use her exposure to feminist theory uh, to fashion a strategy for uh, exiting an unhappy marriage. Um, Her concepts or ideological predisposition um, favoring um, uh, and articulating uh, feminist um, uh, ideological uh, posture might allow her to draw in tool-like fashion ideas and principles that help her to negotiate a better salary with her boss. And it may even inform the entrepreneur who's thinking, hey, the market hasn't thought about that particularly good idea that would really serve women's needs, right? Uh, That because she's got this this feminist ideology to to rely on, she may see the market in ways that other entrepreneurs do not. Under the circumstances of dramatic change, Swidler argues, we are likely to become more focally aware on the tools at our disposal, and better able to articulate these cultural tools to ourselves and to others um, as we compose these new strategies. So the idea is you know, during um, uh, uh, the women's liberation movement, where, where the um, ideas and ideology become more present and more, well, I'll put it the other way, when, when you have greater pressure for, uh, for shift of women's roles That's a dramatic social movement change that makes us more focally aware of the tool-like nature of some cultural shift of this kind. A close relationship exists between cultural tools, cultural tools, and that we might read out of a particular context, and the mental model. So I'm I'm pushing uh, in this diagonal direction here thinking about the connections between cultural tools and the mental models we have. For example, the repeated use of uh, of a particular tool. Like, for example, retelling an historical narrative uh, can reinforce mental models upon which we might draw. So, for example, in the Vietnamese-American community that Virgil and I uh, studied in the uh, post-Katrina environment, members of this community would tell and retell um, the, the story of their, of their arrival in, in New Orleans in the, in the 1970s. This history of hardship and perseverance in, and perseverance was used to illustrate how distinct this community was and who they were as a community. Who, this is our identity, and we're going to tell this story again and again. There was this mental model that they were a particularly perseverant and, and self-reliant community who had been through a lot of, you know, who'd been through hell and back, and so this this latest disaster was really just small potatoes compared to what they'd been through. So I would say that that's a, that's a social, uh, or that's a shared mental model of the community, a story of who they were as a community. And that was something that existed long before Katrina, right? That was, that was, a, that was a, a norm or, or a, a framework that got passed around a lot. In the aftermath of Katrina, though, um, uh, community leaders picked up that idea and used it in a kind of tool-like fashion. Would from the pulpit or on the radio, when they were tr- in, when they were being interviewed for a television spot or a radio or a radio interview, they would tell that story again. The, uh, the, the uh, main priest in the community would tell that story again and again, in order to get people to come home. He would say, "When we came." when we had to migrate um, as a community in the 1950s from North Vietnam because we were um, being chased out by, uh, by the communists because they didn't like us because we were Catholic, and then we were chased out um, after the fall of Saigon, then we relocated here in New Orleans. Think about what you went through then. Think about what your parents or your grandparents went through then. Right? That's hardship. This thing that we're going through right now, not hardship. Right? This is something that we can overcome if we do it together. So come on back home, right? and let's get this job done. So they picked up this this narrative, this this sense of who we were collectively as a community and picked it up in tool-like fashion to leverage a a response and a return Um, and really was was an incredible story of overcoming the collective action problem within that neighborhood. So let's talk about social networks. The resources embedded within social networks of friends and family and neighborhood and in civic, religious, and professional associations are also critical to a program of cultural economy. Social network analysis has emphasized among other effects the impact that social networks have in enabling and and or inhibiting social mobility and economic opportunity. Social networks share a similarly close and sometimes symbiotic relationship with other socially embedded resources. So for example, when social exchange within a small network, a social network, a social exchange occurs over and over again, if there are habits of reciprocity that emerge within the small network, right, In under some circumstances, those habits of reciprocity to individuals we know within the network can spill over into a generalized norm of reciprocity. So again, looking at our diagram here, if we've got lots and lots of, of um, Exchange going on here, and we develop a a pattern of of reciprocity to those we know within our network. Under some circumstances, that can overflow into a more generalized norm of reciprocity within the community. It would have to, for that to happen. You know, we've got to have the exact the conditions right, such that uh, norms that I, I practice within my social networks, I feel comfortable and feel like I can trust that I can practice them beyond my social network, but we might hone, identify and hone and and frame those uh, uh, habits in the small groups that extend to the large groups. There's no guarantee that that happens, but it can happen. Further, some social networks will be particularly adept at leveraging specific kinds of tools. So think about specific religious communities, for example. Um, Some religious communities uh, put a lot of emphasis on the power of, say, priestly authority. So in the story I just told, when the priest said, "Come home," people said, "Okay, I'm coming home." Right? And oftentimes people would say exactly that. Why, we'd ask, "Why? Why did they come back to New Orleans?" Father Vian told me that I needed to come back to New Orleans. That's why I came back to New Orleans. Right? The, pr- the priestly authority mattered in that case. Uh, reciprocity to overcome a collective action problem, that you've got to take care of your neighbor, Uh, that sort of uh, presumption of care for others might also help to overcome a collective action problem. You know, in other communities, in other faith communities, that don't have as strong an emphasis on priestly authority, you know, Quakers can't rely on that, right? Uh, Because Quakers are... Uh, you know pretty decentralized in, in that respect, so that wouldn 't be a meme that we would likely see within a, a contemporary Quaker community in a, in any uh, in any case. okay, if you look at the back of your handout i 've got lots and lots of um, associations, and what I try to do is give you examples of all the ways in which each of these um, pods can influence the other pods in two different directions so that's just there for you to look at later um, if if you like. So my next task that I've set for myself is to really talk about how this this cultural economy approach can help us advance the Austrian research program. And first I wish to argue um, that cultural economy helps Austrians deliver on a promise. Austrians promise an economics of meaning. Austrians promise that, promise an approach to economics in which human meanings are taken seriously, as Mises described in Human Action, in which, play, in, in which plans, purposes, expectations, and framing perspectives of individual actors feature prominently in how we understand broader social and economic outcomes. As Hayek later argued, the relevant facts of the social sciences are the beliefs and interpretive meanings that people possess, not the objective facts of the material world. Mises referred to uh, this concern over meaning as the thymological approach, characterizing it as a branch of applied social science that investigates the intentions that underlie human action. Professor Kirzner talked uh, quite a bit about Professor Lavoie last evening. Uh, Don Lavoie also, uh, with his uh, focus on the interpretive turn or an emphasis on hermeneutics as applied within the social sciences, his point was also to understand what frames the perspective of the individual decision-maker? What is informing that perspective? What's shaping it? If we want to understand broad social outcomes. We need to understand that at the point of the individual decision, but backing that up even further, what is the, thing, what is the framework of the interpretive framework that's informing those decisions, that's informing those uh, plans, uh, those purposes, plan formation, expectation, action, and learning from that action that leads to particular patterns and social outcomes? So another way to say that is a research program on cultural economy is one pathway by which the Austrian call for economics of meaning can be answered in the way that, that McCloskey calls upon us to answer it. Cultural economy goes beyond what McCloskey for example describes as the max u as in maximize utility notions uh, about human agency stripped of you know her 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 point is that max u is an agent is an actor whose notion of human agency is really stripped of any context, stripped of any kind of identity. Uh, and, and so if that's our relevant starting point for analysis, um, that's a really impoverished starting point. Far richer would be a starting point uh, that begins with uh, human beings situated within a particular historical context and embedded within social structures that define both opportunities and constraints. Cultural economy supports an economics of meaning because it takes the mental models of collective narratives by which people understand their world and their own circumstances seriously. Further, cultural economy advances and supports an economics of meaning in that it recognizes that the the landscape we navigate uh, as human decision makers are not only the material and financial landscape, but also a landscape... Uh, that's, that's um, filled with non-material, socially-embedded resources as well. And moreover, cultural economy answers the Austrian call for an economics of meaning by connecting the perspectives, intentions, plans, expectations, and learning that sit at the individual level of the decision-maker to the unintended patterns at, that emerge at the social level. Similarly, cultural economy emphasizes the recursive relationship between the social outcomes that emerge out of a given institutional framework and the socially embedded resources to which individuals may or may not have access. And then finally, cultural economy seeks to understand how individuals cultivate effective strategies for action and how these strategies might in, ge- might in turn generate systematic social outcomes. So in other words, it's a way to connect the micro to the macro. We could, we could describe it that way. It's a way to connect those individual those decisions that are made at the individual level with the social learning that goes on. That we're, if, if, if you're interested in a Hayekian approach to understanding complex social phenomena, it's a system of, of, of social learning. How do we connect those individual decisions to that broader pattern of social learning? A cultural economy lens can help inform and enrich uh, that uh, that research program. My second point, the cultural economy deepens the Austrian research program um, that pursues uh, an understanding of the process of complex discovery. So recalling Mises and Hayek and Kirzner and company A principal claim of the Austrian school is that the market serves as a discovery process, as as, uh, Professor Kirzner was saying last night. This emphasis on the market as a discovery process in turn leads to another central theme of the school, which I just just described, the social learning process. How is it that societies can achieve a level of complexity, coordination, and social intelligence that far surpasses the level of intelligence that any one individual within that society possesses. You know, we're smart, kind of, right? But our society is smarter than we are. We couldn't design the coordination and the order that emerges, right? That's what's one of the central themes of Hayek's work. Scarcity indicating prices, this is Hayek's explanation, right? That scarcity indicating prices are our way of getting at this because they serve as cognitive tools that allow an individual to coordinate with countless unknown others. It's scarcity indicating prices that allow individuals to make use of knowledge that they don't possess directly. It's scarcity indicating prices that allow us to move beyond face-to-face exchange and production to a broader, what Hyatt calls, extended order. And it's scarcity indicating prices that triggers a process of unintended beneficence that spreads across space and time in which people systematically benefit one another without necessarily intending to. From this view, then, the market order is more than a system of resource allocation. It's a complex system of social learning. Okay, So that's, that's the story we get from Hayek. One of the questions that I've wrestled with um, as uh, someone who thinks about the cultural economy perspective is whether there is a similar kind of discovery process that happens that unfolds in the context of non-priced resources, like those that we've talked about today, so resources within social networks, cultural tools, generalized norms, and so on. Is there a discovery process around these kinds of resources that can lead to similar forms of social learning like we see with the market order. Can, for example, shared mental models or a collective narrative overcome the collective action problem? Do collaborations within and across particular social networks benefit not only those whom the collaborators intend to benefit, but also countless unknown others, as we so regularly see in the market order? Can the regular, and specific, uh, regular use of specific cultural tools generate widespread benefits that align expectations and mobilize a collective effort and, and accomplish some end that otherwise would be elusive? Can the use of socially embedded resources not only benefit the generations who deploy them, but also systematically, though unintentionally, benefit future generations as well? Price signals foster social learning because they consolidate vast amounts of information into a relatively simple, easy to read metric that's available to us ready at hand. The price is a remarkable thing. It, 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 It consolidates so much information that's useful to us that we don't need to know directly. In the context of socially embedded resources, signals with somewhat similar characteristics can emerge. In the context of social networks, for example, the analogs to prices might be signals of reputation, status, and authority, for example. Relative, uh, relative to prices, and this is an important point, So, if you've listened to everything else and you don't listen to the next thing I say, you're going to walk out with a you know, big gap. And I suppose the reverse could also be true, right? If you haven't listened to anything and now you listen to this, maybe, maybe you're, you're missing just as much, right? Uh, but relative to prices, non-price signals are, to be sure, far less precise. Uh, than. And non-price signals cannot in general be re- relied upon to convey unambiguously whether or not some action on net has ger- generated greater value in society. Austrians will be the first to uh, caution that this difference is far from trivial. And I agree with that caution. Recall that it is the absence of market prices, as Professor Kirzner reminded us, uh, it is the absence of market prices and associated profit and loss signals that Mises argued that doomed the socialist efforts to replace markets with central economic planning. Without prices, you don't get rational planning. You can't have a rational economy without prices. Yet, okay, with that caveat, yet, as Hayek argues, prices are only meaningful when read in the context of a particular time and place. Remember those um, responses to Mises and Hayek, this, oh, well, we can have a, 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 we can have prices, but we can just aggregate them and we can impose them on the system, you know, in the Longa model, for example. But Hayek pointed out that once stripped of time and place, those prices are meaningless, Right? Another way of seeing that is that while much of the economically relevant knowledge that we come to know is the fleeting changes in in, in prices, it's also that local context that matters in which those price signals are emerging. Much of the relevant knowledge that renders an economic decision a profitable one is actually non-priced knowledge. It's the knowledge of the price in a particular context. That phrase, in a particular context, means a whole lot of other non-price bits of information. Further, prices are not the only form, I would argue, uh, by which meaningful signals can emerge. Uh, There were a lot of non-price signals that were were really important in a post-disaster environment. For example, a you know the 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 return of a prominent citizen, for example, uh, to a community was a non-price signal that if it was your local pastor who came back, that was a non-price signal that the community might have a better than better than even chance of of, of rebounding and recovering. If they finally removed the giant uh, boat from the middle that had landed in the middle of the road, so people could get past. Maybe that was another signal that normal life might return. And the return of Walmart, right? True, Walmart offers goods for prices, but it's the actual return of Walmart to some communities. That's not a price signal. That's a different price signal. I mean, it's not not the same thing as a price signal. It's, It's different from a price signal. That was critical to Waveland, Mississippi coming back. Reputational signals, similarly, for example, can serve as effective guides to action in that they offer critical information in the form of a metric of a kind that is ready at hand uh, to those reading the particular context. Like prices, such signals extend the cognitive reach beyond what we can know through direct experience. So my argument is that uh, the Austrian school's emphasis on the discovery role of the entrepreneurial, de- of entrepreneurial decision-making and the market serves as a platform for us to think about discovery in a broader context. Not only discovery in priced environments, but discovery uh, more broadly as well. Uh, and, and it's this connection between those decisions made at the local and at the mi- most micro context and the more general, social, broader patterns of social learning uh, and social coordination that we see when we look at markets. Perhaps we can also be seeing some of those same phenomena and understanding those similar kinds of connections in non-price settings as well. Um, so I'm gonna close uh, by uh, directing your attention to uh, some things that, that have been on, dis- on display pr- prior to me getting up here, but uh, haven't been talked about in terms of tools uh, that you can use. Um, did anyone else have the experience when um, uh, Professor Caldwell was talking about um, uh, archival work, right? That he, he was really excited, right? And I, I love that, right? Because archival work is very, very similar to field work in, in the kind of, you don't know what you're going to discover, right? You have a faith that if you dive in deeply enough that you're going to discover some stuff. And you might have some initial thoughts about what you think you might discover. but it wouldn't be worth it if all you ever experienced was complete confirmation of what you thought you would learn, right? You, you actually learn new stuff, right? There's a discovery process in the research effort um, that is genuine, right? And that, I think that Austrians are particularly well-placed for that um, because... We don't have the, well, we know what the, what the equilibrium, we know that the, what the solution should be. It should be a nice, elegant equilibrium solution. That's going to be the, the marker of successful scholarship. Well, that's dead, dumb boring, right? I mean, that's boring if you know what, what successful scholarship looks like is that you've come to a solution that you already had planted in your head pretty firmly, whereas the kind of work that we're talking about is, is exciting because, precisely because you don't know what it is you're going to discover. Another thing that was on display uh, as, as a tool for your uh, success as, as a, as a teacher-scholar, um, did anyone else have the experience where you, you just had this moment when Professor White was speaking where it was like, oh, that's how that works. I see it all in front of me again, right? That, that, that was complicated. That used to be complicated, and now it's clear, right? The power of great teaching, the power of great teaching is a source of joy uh, for for the masterful teacher, um, but it's also a very, very powerful tool uh, for liberating liberating young minds, right? And, and, And don't forget that in your pursuit of trying to find the perfect dissertation topic and 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 honing and crafting, you know, chapter three, ju- so it's just so, and making sure you've got an empirical chapter two, so you can demonstrate that you've got chops and all these other uh, in, in these various fields. That is, th- that those are all smart things. But don't forget the power of of that that an extraordinary teacher can have in truly uh, most important um, uh, freedom project that there is, which is the emancipation of the mind. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.